Okay, we are in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to be reading from verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeor, the son of Bekorah, the son of Aphiah, the son of a Benjaminite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Take now with you one of the servants and arise and go search for the donkeys. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but then he did not find them. Then he passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjaminites, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuph, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and will become anxious for us. He said to him, Behold now, there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there, perhaps he can tell us, all, uh, tell us about our journey on which we have set out. Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again, and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come, let us go to the seer. For he who is called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Okay, so in verse 1, we have the introduction to... Saul's father. So remember in in chapter 8, there was a cry from the children of Israel that they wanted a king because they wanted to be like all the other nations around them and having a king. They wanted a king to fight their battles for them. And they wanted a king because they felt that uh, um, that Samuel's sons, because of their actions, would never be able to to, uh, take on the leadership role. So we are now being introduced in chapter 9 to their first king, but it first introduces Saul's father to define who he was, and it talks about his lineage and that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And remember, Benjamin now was a very small tribe because of what had happened in the end of the book of Judges, because of Benjamin's actions, the other tribes of Israel had banded up and nearly wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. So Benjamin was a very small tribe at this point because it had almost been wiped out from among Israel because of its disobedience. But it says that that, uh, Saul's father, whose name was Kish, was a mighty man of valor, meaning that he was a wealthy man. So Saul came from a wealthy family, even though later he says his family is the least of the Benjaminites. This is his view, but we know that he was really formally from a, a, a wealthy family. And it says, it gives us then in verse 2 a description of, of Saul. It says that he was a choice and handsome man. 
So he was a choice man, he was a handsome man, and there was, there was no one, no more handsome person than he among all the sons of Israel. So I mean, this guy was really good looking. Among all the, the sons of Israel, there was not a more handsome man. It says he was taller than all men from his shoulders on upwards. So if you took a crowd of men, he was, he, he had a full head, head's length above them, uh, above the crowd. So he was really a choice man that people could look to and say, hey, we are proud that this man is our king. This is a good choice, a handsome man. If you want to be looking good in the eyes of the world, this is what they got. In the eyes of the world, they got someone who really looked the part of a king. And now we're going to see what happens is that Kish, who has donkeys, so we know that he must have been a reasonably well-off man at least because he had donkeys, plural, and he had servants, plural, because he says to his son Saul, take one of the servants. So in other words, you choose which one you want to take with you. So there were multiple of those servants and go and search for the donkeys that are lost. And so Saul heads out with one of the servants and they start looking. They start going and they first go up into Ephraim and they start looking, thinking that this is probably where the donkeys went. And then they circle back and start looking through the tribes of Benjamin to find where their donkeys had gone. And all of this, now God is setting up to have kings, to have who's going to, the one who's going to be anointed king, to have Saul meet Samuel the prophet. Now one would think that Saul could just, you know, somebody could come up and send Saul a message, you know, bring him a note from Samuel. Go and meet Samuel at such and such a place. Or God could speak to Saul in a dream. Make it very vivid. God could certainly do that. Speak to Saul in a dream and say, Thou shalt go to, to Ramah and meet this, this seer. And he is going to tell you something important. God has done that on many occasions in the Scriptures. God has spoken to people. But on other occasions, He leads people differently. In this case, He's searching all over. Saul and his servant are going all over for multiples of days looking for these lost donkeys to the point where they run out of... They, uh, their, their food in their bag is almost gone. And, they, and Saul thinks they have nothing. And then at this point, the servant says... So, so Saul says in verse 5, we'd better go back because my father's going to start worrying about us and no longer about his donkeys. And if you're a father, you can well understand that. You send your son on, on a small task, and then your son doesn't come back. You don't care at all about the task. You care about your son. Where has he gone? And so this is natural. And then the servant says in verse 6, Behold now, there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in high honor. All that he says certainly comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about the journey on which we have set out. So that the servant is telling Saul that a man of God lives in this city, it's an indication that probably Samuel is past his prime, and the servant is probably older than Saul, because there are things that the servant knows about people who live in this city that Saul doesn't even know. Saul apparently doesn't even know much about Samuel, which would say that it's it's really past his prime. Samuel's probably past his prime, and, and uh, we know at this stage he was, he was well on probably into his 80s at this point. And 
So he has to say, there is somebody here who might be able to tell us. But what do you have? You have these two men walking all over looking for a bunch of donkeys in order to get their way to meet Saul, to, to meet Samuel the prophet. God very often leads us through circumstances. And Watchman Nee says, never think yourself to be so spiritual that you don't have to be led by circumstance. Joseph and Mary, they're about, Mary is about to give birth to the baby Jesus. You would think certainly that God could speak to Mary because he had spoken to her formerly through an angel. That God could speak to Joseph because he had spoken to him formerly through an angel. That God could speak to them and they'd have glowing and open hearts to go down to Bethlehem to make sure that Jesus is born in the right place where he's supposed to be born and not up in Nazareth. So how does God get them there? Through an angel? No, through a census. Through a census is called that everybody has to return to their hometown. And then you look at all that they had to go through. Here it says Mary was great with child, so she's about to give birth. And when women are in this condition, my wife has been in this condition several times, especially when they're in the late phases of this, they don't generally like to have to travel a long distance on foot or sitting on a donkey's back. And, but God orders things through circumstances, and the circumstances are not always easy. It's not always easy to go through this thing. Why doesn't God just tell me what I ought to do? Well, because He chooses to speak to you in a different way. Through circumstances. Because it's those circumstances that He uses to make us who we are. To bring us through the circumstances in life. In fact, if you are waiting for God to speak to you, to actually speak to you, to tell you what you ought to do, I guarantee you, in most cases, you're going to be waiting an awfully long time. And for those that hear God speaking to them all the time of everything that they should do, very often change their mind on what God was saying to them, because they're not always hearing from God, because our own minds can speak to us. And that's not that God doesn't speak to people. Or that he can't speak to people. He generally doesn't do it for every little thing. So when we hear, well, God told me to do this. And God told me to do that. I'm like, well, didn't he tell you something different last week? And now he's, so has he made a mistake? Or maybe you are mistakenly hearing him. So we have to be really careful when we say, God told me to do this. God told me to do that. He may have told us, but we have to then, well, how did he tell us? If he speaks to us a word through the scriptures that is confirmed, we have to then think about, is this the word for me? And wrestle that thing through. And sometimes we can take hold of it. But we have to be careful because very often he leads us through circumstances. He opens up a job in a particular city. And that's the only job offer. And he's closed everything down. Well, he may be leading you through circumstances. Couldn't he have just said, why don't you just go to such and such a city? Well, no, he leads very often through circumstances, as he was doing here. And we should never think ourselves so spiritual that we don't have to be led often in that way. And then this servant explains to him about this seer, this one who can tell where the donkeys may be. 
So in verse 7 it says, Then Saul said to the servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring to the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring to this man of God. What do we have? And the servant said to Saul, Again, and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I'll give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Now, in verse 9, you see this, this qualification that the narrator here tells us. It says, Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come, let us go to the seer. For he who was called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. Again, this is an indication that this book was written some number of years after the event, or else you wouldn't have to say, well, in the old days, this is the way it was. This is an indication for us. And so, so you explain things that, you know, things change. Let me give you an example. You know, I might use the expression, you know, the, you know, the guy sounded like a broken record. And for people who were born in an MP3 generation, they don't know what I'm talking about. They don't know that, you know, you used to have this vinyl disc that would go around and a very common thing is the needle would skip and it would play the same, you know, line over and over and over again. But to people who have never used record players, they don't know what I'm talking about. And you say, well, you've heard this expression. There are a number of things that change with time that you have to then explain yourself. So he, he's explaining what used to happen. And the other interesting point is, Saul said, we can't go to this man of God and ask for his wisdom and his insights without having a gift for him. And this idea of giving a gift to the prophet is not a foreign idea. In fact, in 1 first, in first Kings chapter 14, verse one, verses 1 through 3, there was the prophet Ahia, who it says that, you know, they brought this, bring this gift to this prophet and... He will tell you what you should do. You go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 in the New Testament. It says, the laborer for the Lord is worthy of his wages. Now, let me qualify this. I don't want your money. I don't accept money. I get paid by the university and I get paid very well. So, I don't, I don't get money for doing this sort of thing. However, if you are not in the habit of donating money to those that speak into your life and teach you the word of God... You are not following the practices of God. In the New Testament is the instruction to the believer. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, it says, The laborer, the one who gives us the word of God, is worthy of their wages. So if you're not in the habit of giving to the church where you are instructed, you ought to get in that habit. You say, well, I'm a student. I'm exempt. There is no such exemption for anyone. If you have $5 in your pocket, you can give a portion of it. Whatever you have, you can learn to give, because if you're cheap now, you'll be cheap later. People think, well, when I get a real salary, then I'll have plenty of money to give. Wrong. When you get a real salary, you'll also have a car payment and a house payment and kids and all these other things that you have to pay for. Well, uh, when I get a promotion, then I'll give. And what happens is you're retiring. You say, I've never given in my life. And you've reaped exactly what you've sown. You must learn to give into the lives of the people that speak into your life. If the people that are campus workers are speaking into your life, share with them. Give with them. Give them a portion as you see other believers going over the summer on missions or going over Christmas vacation on missions who are your, your friends. I don't give to them. They're not missionaries. They're just students, just like me. No, they're going on a mission. Help them. And those of you going on a mission, take something out of your own pocket and give to this. 
Don't feel you need to raise every penny of it. You know, scrounge together over the year and pull together $500 so that you can pay at least a portion of this. And when you are fathers and mothers, remember this. If you can fly your kids to Aspen for vacation, you can pay for their mission trip too so that they don't have to be a burden on the church and leave that money for other kids that don't have access to it. You see what I mean? So that when my kids want to go on mission trips, I want to pay for all of it or a significant portion because I can afford that. They say, well, no, they told us to raise money. No, the Bible's very clear. It says, support only widows who are widows indeed. In other words, don't support all widows. There are widows indeed who the church was to support. And it said they had to have born children. They had to have, ha, have been faithful in the body of Christ. They couldn't be less than 60 years old. And it says, and if they have children, let their own children support them so that they're not on a burden on the church. So in other words, the only way you can put all of that together is that they had born children, and now their children are all dead. Because you have to support this widow. Because it says, if she has children, the children are supposed to support her. You say, no, the church should do that. No, the, the Bible says the church shouldn't do that. You leave that money for people who really need it. Let her children start practicing something of their faith and start supporting their, their mother who's now a widow. So just because there's access to money doesn't mean we take it. You know, if you have money in your account, use a portion of that for your mission trip. Saul realized we can't go to this man of God empty-handed. And the servant said, no, I've got a fourth of a shekel of silver that I've been saving. And Saul says to him in, in, in verse 10, then Saul said to the servant, well said. You know, Paul, so this means, all right, you know, we're set. You know, we're ready. We've got a fourth of a shekel of silver. We have something to give to this man of God. I want you to learn to be generous, to learn to participate. And if you have a lifestyle of generosity, where you are giving to other people who are going on mission trips, you will never lack anything when you are going on a mission trip. Because the Bible is very clear. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. And remember, the principle of sowing and reaping is not I plant a kernel of corn and I get a kernel back. I plant a kernel of corn and I get 10,000 kernels back. That is the principle of sowing and reaping. You will never lack. So, when you see some of your, your, your classmates graduating and they're going to do a year or two with, with uh, Agape or some other campus ministry... And, and they're going to do that, and you're graduating, and you're going to be getting a real job as an engineer, you know what you can do. You can start supporting them. You say, well, I'm not on the campus anymore. Well, duh, you're not on the campus anymore. You're making a lot of money. Now's your time to support them that are going to be working on the campus. You say, well, I don't go to the school where, where they're going to be ministering. Exactly. You're not supposed to pay into that just because it's the school where you're at or it's the school that you went to. You support these people. You give to them. This is a practice that was there in the Old Testament. It remains in the New Testament. We support these folks. Okay, so they go on through all these circumstances and they go on and they now meet, they meet uh, um, Samuel the prophet. In verse 11, as they went up the slope to the city, they found young women going out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered them and said, He is. See, he is ahead of you. Hurry now, for he has come into the city today for the people who have sacrificed on the high places. 
for, for the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat, for the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up, for you will find him at once. So they went up to the city, and they came into the city. Behold, Samuel was coming out toward them to go up to the high place. Now, remember, we had covered this before. A sacrifice on the high, pra- on the high place was permitted by the high priest, by the priest, could offer up a sacrifice on a high place prior to the establishment of the temple. And now the tabernacle was even in temporary quarters. So this was very much permitted in that day, and it wasn't until the establishment, the formalizing of the establishment of the temple in Solomon's day that it said there should be no more offerings on the high place. But even now it was only to be done by the priest. So look what happens. They see some, some young women who were getting water, which was the typical practice and continues to be the practice of women throughout many parts of the world today. They were going to draw water in verse 11. And they said one simple thing to these young women, is the seer here? They answered him, he is. And then they go into this long scenario of everything that's going on. And you know what I think is happening? You've got a guy who's the handsomest guy in all of Israel who's this big hulk of a guy, and you have all these young women together. And this man asks them a question, and they could have said, they they, they said, is the seer here? They could have said, yes. I'm telling you, if this guy was just a normal guy, or if this guy, you know, had like, like messed up teeth and one eye and, and hunched over and everything, and his hair was all messed up, they would have just said, uh... Yes, and walked off. But this is the handsomest guy in all of Israel. And you know, one girl gets intimidated by a really handsome guy. But if they're in a group, you know, they all start, you know, trying to say something. You know, let their voice be heard. And so they go into this whole story. Yes, he is here. He's ahead of you. You better hurry. Oh, and by the way, you know, the people are having a feast today. He has to go up there and he'll be doing this today. The people can't... That wasn't the question. Is he here? Or isn't he? And you know, the special attention that this guy is getting. And these, I'm telling you, these girls, Lindsay, you've got to confirm this for me. They probably went off after, you know, after these, this Saul and his servant left. They were like, Wah. And they, they ran back to their, their dorm room and checked, you know, for Saul, the son of Kish on Facebook. <laughs> or something like that. They get together and talk about this sort of thing, don't they? Yes. yes. <laughs> but there's this special attention that this guy is getting. Um, so he was probably used to this type of special attention. But in any case, look at the, the, what they go through to just say yes. Yes, he's here. And so as they're going now to meet, this, this, uh, to meet Samuel... It says that they were going in the sea. Behold, Samuel was coming out toward them to go up to the high place. Now, a day before Samuel's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have, regard, I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, 
The Lord said to him, Behold the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall rule over my people. So, God had already spoken to the prophet. There was a relationship here. And God said to the prophet, Tomorrow, about this time, I'm going to bring to you a man. And here's the specifications. I'm going to bring to you a man from the land of Benjamin. You're to anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. God has regarded His people because their cry has come to Him. These are the same people that said, we want a king. And, Sam, and God said, look, Samuel, tell him what the practice of the king is going to be. And Samuel said, uh, he's going to take your sons and he's going to stick them in the army and he's going to take your sons and he's going to do their plowing and he's going to take the best of your land and he's going to take a tenth portion of everything you have to fund his whole administration and he's going to give it to his, his uh, officers and he's also going to take your daughters to be bakers and cooks and perfumers. That's the practice of the king. And Samuel said, do you still want the king? And the people said, yeah, we want that. Can you give warnings to all the, to the people from the Word of God exactly what's going to happen? They say, no, we still want that. And you'd think that God would be so upset that He would say, you know, I'll give these people just a terrible man. I'll, I'll, I'll really spite them with that. No, He gave them a good man. They wanted somebody who was an impressively lo- impressive, looking, impressive looking person. He gave them that. But He also said, this man has all the qualifications to really deliver you from the people of the Philistines because I have heard your cry. Because God is our Father. So even when we are unreasonable with Him, because He is our Father, He shows love toward us. He did nothing to spite them. He gave them a man Who had the qualifications? In fact, Watchman Nee describes how Saul had everything that was needed to serve as king. Everything that was needed to serve as king. But he himself chose to walk without humility. And he he says that Saul's fundamental problem was a problem of conceit. Was a problem of conceit. You know, if, if you're, you know, people have, have talked and they said, you know, what about, what about athletes? Look at these professional athletes and the way they act and the things that they do. And my reply to them is, if I was 19 years old and I had a $40 million contract and people looked at me like I was really so great because I could throw a basketball through a net and I was getting 30 or 40 million dollars a year, and I was 19 years old, I would probably be so ugly as a person that I'm amazed that any of these young guys can stand with the accolades that they get. Because when you get that type of recognition, when you get that type of of applause, and people looking to you like you are really something, imagine what it does to you. Imagine how your heart can rise up above your countrymen. This happens all the time. 
When you graduate, you will see how insidious your heart can be as it starts rising up above those who are around you. You're put in certain positions. And after a few years, again, you start thinking something of yourself that you ought not to. And men really start thinking, oh, all these people call me doctor, and they call me professor, and they call me wonderful, and they call me this and that. And you start thinking of yourself as wonderful. You do. And then what happens is men fall into immorality. Because all these women start looking to them like they're really something when they're not. Because we start thinking ourselves of ourselves in some glorious way, as if we're really something when we start getting all these accolades. And if you are really pretty or really handsome, it is all the harder. Because I see the treatment. You know, a new graduate student joins the group and, you know, some guy from, I don't know, name the country, China, India. I bring him into the lab and I say, you you know, um, so-and-so, can you... you show this, this new student around the lab. You know, they're just joining the group and uh, show them around the lab and you know, tell them about the work you do. And you know, the student will look at me, well, okay. Like I'm asking them to kill themselves to you know, show this kid around the lab. And they're sure to let me know that they're cutting off their right hand and giving it to me because I've, I've, I've now consumed 20 minutes of their lives. But if one attractive young lady is joining the group, and I bring them into the lab, and I can bring them to the same guy and say, uh, this young lady is joining the group. Do you mind telling them about the work that you're doing, showing them around the lab? Oh, sure, sure. You know, it's just like they're, they're happy. If you're used to getting this type of treatment, special treatment, because of the way you look, you have to be particularly careful. You do. Because you won't always have those looks. You know, your face will change over time. And you have to be especially careful. Saul was used to these type of accolades all his life. And then when he becomes king, although there are indications that he started out quite humble, he didn't end up that way. And the scriptures give us clearly, and we have said it again and again, what he should have done and what the scriptures tell us to do to keep ourselves from lifting up ourselves above our countrymen. The instruction that was given to kings in Deuteronomy 17. Let's read it again. This is what we are supposed to do. So when you become doctor and you become a, 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 a partner in the law firm, remember how it is that you keep yourself humble. Deuteronomy 17 Verse 18, now it shall come about, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of the law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. And or may not turn aside from the commandments to the right or to the left, that he and his sons may continue long in the kingdom in the midst of Israel. If you will take this book, you want to know the most sure way of keeping yourself from wicked pride that will lift yourselves up above others. It is take this book and make it your meditation. 
drives the fear of God into your life. And if you think, oh, I know that book, there is an indication you need this book. You feel about, you know, wherever I pick it up, I, I pretty much know this. It means you know nothing. If you have that feeling, it means you know nothing. This book speaks to you like no other book. You read it and it speaks life into you. You say, well, education will do this. Education will do the opposite. If education will do what this book does, then all the people in, in the academy should be humble and gentle because of what education has done to them. And it's just the opposite. Because with education, your head swells. And I'm all for education, but you have to do something to contain that swelling that occurs with education. It is this book drives the fear of God into you and gives you the fear of God so that you don't lift yourselves up above your countrymen because as soon as you do, the Holy Spirit drives you to conviction or He allows something to happen into your life which is terribly embarrassing and you go, this is just what the Word of God told me, that pride goes before a fall. Thank you, Lord, for Your Word. Drive the fear of God into ourselves through this Word. This is what we must do. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank You so much for Your Word, for the truth of Your Word, for what You've given us, for what You've done. Lord, I pray that we continue to learn through the lives of the people in Scriptures. Father, I pray for these young people that You give them generous attitudes and a generous spirit, that they would learn to share and to give to those that make their living from the gospel. That they would give to those who make their living from it. That they would learn to give to their churches. That they would learn to give to those who serve them and minister the word of God around them. Father, I pray that you would take these young people and keep them from a foolish pride. That they would take the word of God which would keep them from lifting up themselves above their countrymen. To take this word and make it a part of their lives. And Father, as you lead them through their lives, through circumstances, may they see your hand, pray for your good blessing and direction, and then open doors before them and lead them accordingly. By your grace and blessings, I pray, have mercy on them. In the name of Jesus, amen.